who are going to Sunday school, y'all can head that way. rest of us, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We're going to be picking it up in verse 12, looking through verse 19. This is one scene in the life of Christ that's actually recorded in all four Gospels. You don't have a whole lot of those, but this is one of them. It's been traditionally called the triumphal entry. This is Christ coming into the city of Jerusalem, uh, what we would normally or what we would also traditionally call Palm Sunday, recorded in all four Gospels, Mark, tw- Mark 11, Matthew 21, and Luke 19. This is, interestingly enough, this is the only time in the entire life of Christ that he's rightly received in Jerusalem. Every other time he's scoffed at and mocked or rejected. But he is the king, he is the savior, he is the Messiah, the son of God, and he is worthy of admiration and worship from day one and from all the people. Now this scene that we're going to look at, it is jam-packed with meaning theologically, chronologically, the timeline. I mean, this is a week before he's about to be crucified, and John's timeline's a little different. We'll get into that here in a minute. But it's packed with profound accomplishments. I mean, there's going to be prophecy fulfilled. There's training and instruction given out to the faithful, warnings to the obstinate. It's a window into human nature that we'll even see here and then later on when you zoom ahead a week to see the people who were at both moments, the crucifixion and the triumphal entry. Now, as we've been doing with all of John's gospel, so much of this is so familiar to us. So what we're going to ask to do today is to slow down and to look at these parts. And I love it when something like this, like Palm Sunday, we're talking about the text on Palm Sunday. I love it when it happens not on Palm Sunday because it kind of just takes us out of, the, out of the ritual, out of the routine, and we can think about it with a fresh set of eyes. That's important, to look at this text with a fresh set of eyes, slowing down and knowing What's coming? We know the crucifixion is coming. We, we understand that beforehand. And it's great to study passages like this, removed from the calendar date, but knowing still how the whole book ends up. So instead of thinking about this text and kind of the, the cliched brevity, just the short, simple treatment that always it gets happened on it, Let's put some pieces together. I want us to look at this. This is going to be the framework for us to understand this package or this passage is the unstoppable nature of the gospel. That there is a steam locomotive headed straight to Calvary's hill and on through to the ascension to the right hand of the Father. And this is one, not even stop. It's just a movement all the way through. It's interesting to even think about that Jesus is moving this entire time through the triumphal entry. So we're going to see that the worship of God Almighty cannot be stopped, that God's sovereign plan is invincible, even inevitable, that his sovereign plan to atone for sin, to redeem sinners, and to be worshiped as the only true God, that train cannot stop, headed straight for Calvary's hill, on through to the ascension to the right hand of the Father. And the best illustration I could think of to make sense of this was a train. And when you, I don't know about when you were in driver's ed, but if you had it with Mr. Renfro in Waco, then we had the same teacher. And Mr. Renfro, 
he was a classic driver's ed teacher. Have you ever met a driver's ed teacher that you're like, man, that guy's normal? Yeah, this seems like right up, right up his alley. Well, I mean, he had one or two that were assistants like that, but he said, he claimed, and I believed it, he got struck by lightning three times in his life. And he used to be a race car tire salesman, and one of them was at the racetrack, and he got struck by lightning holding a tire. But if I ever believed that somebody had been hit by lightning two or three times, it was Mr. Renfro. And he showed us this video very uh, spitefully, but you can't blame the guy. I mean, he teaches 15-year-old kids all day long exclusively, and he's the one responsible for putting them on the roadways. So he was cynical, let's put it like that. He showed us this video when it came to... Um, the, the hazards you come across on the road and all the different things that you have to understand and cr driving across train tracks. And he showed us a video that I think, this is before YouTube's a thing, this is before any, I mean, he had this recording video of train accidents, of cars getting hit by trains. And he made us watch it for like 10 straight minutes. And a train accident happens like this, does it not? I mean, this is like dozens of train accidents and one of them was brutal. But the point was he was saying, you get on that train track because I know what you're going to do. You're going to see the bars come down. You're going to try to wiggle through them and get all the way through. You're not going to believe there's a train. Well, here's somebody who thought that that was going to be true for them. Wham, they get hit by a train. And here's somebody who thought it was going to be true for them. Wham, they get hit by a train. I mean, over and over and over. And he's like, your car to a train is like a Coke can to a car, an empty Coke can to a car. And you, we left seeing that video of like, oh, gosh, like, trains are real. Like, you cannot stop a train. Like, we, we get it. We're not going to do it. Ever since then, I've been horrified of train tracks. <laughs> the point being that whatever obstacle was gonna, supposed to be in Jesus' way, he is inevitably moving to the cross. And the cross is not moving to defeat. It's moving to victory. So the Pharisees can throw out anything that they want to throw out in the way. And people can even try to persuade Jesus to take upon him, we'll see here, a kingship that he was not pursuing, and he's not going to be stopped by it. And the worship of the one true God is also not going to be stopped. It's all part of one, one plan. The, the, uh, the Westminster divines, these, these men, they're just pastors and theologians called together in the 1600s, when they were talking about the plan of God, they weren't talking about multiple plans. That's what they called it, the decree, singular of God, that all things that happen at all time and all space is a part of one plan of God. It's one decree, the chief of which, or the, the moving engine of the locomotive, is the redemption of sinners by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So we're going to see that spelled out for us this morning. So let's look at these first couple of verses in verse 12. The next day... The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So remember what we, we happened precedingly, right? We had the scene we saw last time of Mary spilling all of that expensive perfume all over Jesus' feet, anointing him for burial. And then right before that was Lazarus' resurrection, that Jesus raises him up. Now the next day, after that scene with Mary, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, what feast is this? Well, we know that by John 11, 55 through 56. Now, Passover, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Passover is the feast. This is the third Passover that John records uh, in his gospel. Now, for, for reminder's sake, this is a huge feast. This is not just a big church picnic like we're going to have. 
This is biblically mandated. Everybody's got to come to Jerusalem. Doesn't matter where you live, you got to come. And the historian Josephus, he records, and he's notoriously known for inflating numbers a bit because he's Jewish and writing about, he's, he's being paid by the Romans and he's writing about Jewish history, so he kind of inflates his own people a little bit. But his highest number for a Passover, just a, a, few, a few years after Jesus' life on earth, was 2.7 million people in Jerusalem. Now, if you say that, well, he inflated it, he doubled it. That's still a million and a half people that are there. The lowest number that's estimated is 500,000 people in Jerusalem. Now, this is a primitive, no plumbing, no electricity, first century town. So 500,000 people, that's, if you've ever been to a, a college football game or an NFL game, that's like 100,000 people. So multiply that by five. And if it's a million people, multiply it by 10. That's, everybody's jammed into this city for this feast. They got to be there. Now, this is important a time to explain what Passover is. It comes from Exodus chapter 12. And if you're familiar with Exodus chapter 12, you know that it comes as the end of the 10 plagues that God brings upon the Egyptians who are enslaving the people of God, Israelites, won't let them go. And God brings the, the plagues, the gnats, the, the boils, the blood into water, and then the on and on until the last plague comes and it's the death of the firstborn son. And God tells his people, here's how you avoid my wrath on your family. You take the best lamb that you have, spotless, not, not the one with a broken leg, not the one with the weird fur, not the one with the, the blind eyes, not any of that, the best one you have. The one that you would want to multiply and continue breeding to make your flock more healthy. That one, you kill that lamb. And you take the blood and you spread it over the doorpost. You cover your family with the blood of the lamb. And then when judgment comes by, you will be passed over. It's described in Exodus 12, 12 through 14 like this. He says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, the firstborn sons, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So right there. This is a forever ordinance for the people of God to celebrate this day. And it seems like a dark celebration. But what, what did you have to do in order to just have God pass over you in wrath and bless you and, and take you out of slavery into redemption? Sacrifice a lamb. Believe that God would accept the blood of the lamb in order to save you. From who? From him. From his judgment. No judgment will befall you. Mercy will befall you. If your house, your family is covered by the blood of the Lamb. Does it all, is it clicking for us now? We see this when John says in John 129, John the Baptist, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because if a Jew didn't, an Israelite didn't cover their house with that, they would, they would undercome the wrath. It wasn't an ethnic thing. It was an obedience thing. It was a faith issue. The sin of the world. So it has to be 
that Jesus is coming in during Passover. This moment has to happen. This is Sunday following the, to the next Fridays when Jesus is crucified. It has to happen at this feast. While all the people are there, it has to be a big feast. It has to be big in public, and it has to be this one. It has to be Passover. Because 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. He is our forever Passover lamb. Now the buzz is starting to spread about Jesus in verse 12. They heard that he was coming. And we just read earlier, John 11, 55, 56, there everybody's like, is he going to show up? Test. The Pharisees have made an official edict from the Sanhedrin. Pharisees and Sadducees together have said, we're going to kill him. This is the end. An official edict has gone out. There's posters put up for his, for his warrant. And now it's confirmed that he is going to come indeed because they've heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. In verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So this is the moment we see we get Palm Sunday, these palm branches. It's interesting that John is the only gospel writer who calls them palm branches. Matthew calls them tree branches. Mark calls them leafy branches. Luke doesn't even talk about the branches. But we get palm from John. Interesting to note. And no author mentions them waving. Every little kid program that we've seen with Palm Sunday, what are those kids doing? Waving those rascals. You know, that's actually from an extra biblical uh, account that the palm branch is not supposed to even be a part of the Feast of Passover. It is supposed to be a part of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, but not this one. So why are they getting palm branches now? Well, it had become, the palm branch had become in the intertestamental period, so the time between Malachi and Matthew, 400 years, no Bible being written, just really bad times. From that, there's this family called the Maccabees. And while they're being oppressed by the Syrians, these Maccabees, Judah, the most famous of them all, they drive out these oppressing Syrians and kick them all out. And the palm frond becomes a symbol of their victory. So much so that as soon as they kick them out, they put that logo on their money, on their coins. That the palm frond is a symbol of victory. So it's not mandated. These people are saying, just like Judah Maccabees, we got a victory. We have a, a victory. We have a strong man coming in on our behalf. So they run out there with these palm branches. And also, what does it say? They went out meeting him took the palm branches and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now elsewhere in these different accounts, Matthew and Mark and Luke, it says that they took their robes off and laid them on the ground. We're going to look at what Matthew, Mark, and Luke say in several different places, and here's one important place. John doesn't take the time to record this in much detail, but the rest of the synoptics do. They lay these robes down. They put them out in the, in the mud. In the, in the roadway. Some of the branches are down there too so that Jesus is going to come across it. He'll, we'll see in a minute. And that does have a biblical, historical precedent. In 2 Kings 9.13, there's a man named Jehu who's being coronated as king. And it says, Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Now, Jehu is not exactly a Christological figure, a type of Christ, because he's pretty good. 
He drives out. Uh, he kills Jezebel. That's a, that's a big win. Uh, kills Joram. Kills all of Ahab's and Ahaziah's descendants. And he expels Baal worship out of Israel. But what's ultimately recorded of him was he was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord. So he wasn't a perfect Christological example. Nevertheless, the nation of Israel did have some kind of concept that when we're coronating a king and he's coming in after fighting off all of our enemies or he's promised to fight off all of our enemies, lay your robes down and a symbol of humility, of acceptance that this is the king, this is the one that we covered the road for. And if it's wise for us to look backward to observe this behavior about what we're seeing with the palm branches and the robes, we should always also look forward. Look at... Revelation 7, 9 and 10, with the enthronement of the Lamb being foreseen as not having happened yet. This is a future event. After this, I looked, John says, same John who wrote, the multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So this coming scene pictures the palm branches. The past scene sees the robes in the streets for a coronation of a king, and it's all around the Lamb the one true final Passover lamb. And the people are shouting, Hosanna. That's Hebrew for save us now, or please save us, or save we pray. It's, it's a, something's going to happen right now. Do this right now. They're looking for, these people are looking for immediate physical liberation from Rome. The Roman Empire is oppressing them and ruling them. They give them a little bit of freedom. The Pharisees we saw were worried about losing. But they're thinking, this, the moment's here. The moment's now. And they're not making up these words. They're quoting from Psalm 118, 25 through 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Or you could just substitute for that, Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of of the Lord. This is one of the, the, the most thoroughly messianic psalms in the Old Testament, meaning a psalm written centuries before Jesus that's exclusively about Jesus. And it's one of the most, one of six most quoted psalms in the New Testament. It's a massive psalm. And it's, and it's in the category of the halal psalms. Not halal, not like the meat shop down the road. Like this is a different, this is a, <laughs> a grouping of psalms, 113 to 118 that were to be sung at all of the major feasts. The morning was to be awakened and to be ushered in during those feasts by the temple priests or choirs singing these psalms. 118 is the last one of them with this big moment coming and rising. And in verse 22, we won't, we won't read it, but it's all about Jesus being the, the stone that the builders have rejected, becoming the chief cornerstone. So we can't help but see this psalm and look back and just see Jesus in it. And that's what these people are saying, this messianic psalm. But are they saying it because they understand Jesus to be the Messiah that he really is? Or are they saying it because they're convinced we finally got a superhero? We've seen enough. 
Like, I mean, he did all these things, and we've heard that he did these things. Even though I didn't get to see it, I know that he, my friend saw it. A neighbor of a neighbor of a neighbor saw it and told me about it, all about it. It was fantastic. He's the guy, and here's the moment. It's Passover, and he's coming in. We can see him. There he is. They want to be free from Roman tyranny right now. They've whipped themselves into the frenzy. They're quoting scripture wrongly, but nevertheless, rightly from our perspective, wrongly from their own minds. And if God can use Caiaphas to prophesy, remember we saw that in chapter 11, he can use these crowds to say the truth that we can see, yeah, you guys are right, but your hearts are wrong. You do the same thing with both of them. And what's interesting that we need to take note of right now because John is going to have a pretty big gap between this day and crucifixion because we're going to have chapters 13 through 17 of just a discussion with the disciples in the upper room uh, before we get to the end of this week. So one week it's explained out for a long time. So the end of this week is coming and this is going to be the same crowd of people because they're all still in town for the same feast. Now they're saying, exalt him, he's the guy. And then many of them are going to be saying, crucify him and give us Barabbas. So this crowd is fickle, we will see. But the prophecy is going to be fulfilled. They're crying out in Psalm 118, for Psalm 118, and now verse 14 and following, we're going to see another prophecy fulfilled that they weren't even paying attention to. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That's why I had Scott read Zechariah 9, 9 through 17. Not just because I wanted to prove to you I know that Zechariah is in the Bible. Like, <laughs> we, sometimes we forget he's in there. But nevertheless, this obscure prophecy, Jesus is going to fulfill at this moment. And we read that whole section because often the New Testament writers quote a small portion of the Old Testament because they want us to go back and read the whole thing in context. And the whole context of that portion of Zechariah is that he's coming in, he's bringing salvation, everybody's seeing it, everybody understands it, and it's going to be an eternal salvation, but yet he's riding on a, on a donkey's colt. The Synoptics Gospels, they can record a lot more about the donkey itself. Let me just read you from Mark 1 through 7, or 11, 1 through 7. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of the disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. So you have this recorded in the other Gospels, and you're like, well, man, John got it right. He just kind of just like cut right to the point. Jesus rides in on a, on a young donkey. Why do we need all these details? These details, they all matter. When we look at these details... As a Bible study tip, every detail matters. There's no wasted words. And maybe we don't think that a lot of times when we read the Bible because we've been burned. I mean, if you've gone to Washington, D.C. after watching the National Treasure movie and thinking every place, this is a clue, everything's a clue here. 
And we can find, if I knock on Abraham Lincoln's shoe at this big monument, then that door's going to open and we're going to go in there. We think that, or we think that, oh my God, I'm going to go, or all these spy novels, I'm going to go into this escape room and I'm going to, you know what, this hollow part of the wall, I'm going to smash through it and then pull out the key and that's going to give us a shortcut. We think that some details don't end up mattering. We've been told that they do and they end up not. Everything in the scriptures matters. Every detail matters. It's up to the reader, it's up to the preacher indwelt by the Spirit to find out what it means, why it's recorded. Why record this prophecy? Verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Why, why record this? What's, what's the point of Zechariah 9.9? 9? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Jesus, this is why. This is why I bring up the, John to bring up this passage. Jesus to actually go to the extent to do this action. Jesus fulfills every single messianic prophecy that there is all of them Jesus is not like man he's the one who got the closest so we're going to take him as the guy he's not the one who did the best he's you know we can't expect everybody to to make it all the way through so he got no no he fulfills all of them and this Zechariah 9 9 this is an obscure messianic prophecy that could be overlooked and that we'll see later on or here a few minutes, that none of them even understood when it happened. Zechariah's really never been that popular of a book, apparently, because they weren't really understanding it and reading it when they saw it happen. But what does this show to the observer? Jesus physically sitting on this donkey. And the donkeys in, the, in Palestine, in the first century, they're small. And this is a colt, a foal. So Jesus is probably looking very undignified on this donkey, having to pick his legs up even so they don't drag the ground. I mean, this is not a, a masculine, conquering, domineering way. Imagine if Jesus rides in on a white war horse with armor on, and that horse is running in, kicking up dust and whinnying and jumping on its back legs. What happens then? Now you have a full-on revolt. Now they're saying, here, this is going to happen now. We're going to do this. But he comes in on a donkey, and not even like a seasoned donkey. See, this shows us two things. Zechariah points it out, that he's humble. A donkey's not a noble beast, not expensive, not hard to get. He's not, this is not a big deal. He doesn't look impressive. The donkey's not running fast. He's a full-grown man on a young donkey that's never been ridden before. So it shows his humility in his first advent, his first coming, his humility. Second thing that it shows is authority. Because even though Zechariah describes this shepherd king coming in on a donkey, he still is bringing salvation to the world and putting down all of Israel's, meaning the people of God's, through all ages, all of their enemies. So he still has the authority. And how does this authority displayed? This donkey's never been ridden. And do we call people donkeys because they're compliant and faithful and loyal? No, no we, we call them donkeys because you're being stubborn and obstinate and a real pain. That's why we call people that. And this is an untrained donkey that's never been ridden before. His first ride is this one, and he's being ridden just fine. 
because Christ has authority over all of creation and over all things. If he rides in on a big white steed, it, 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 it signifies war is coming and victory is inevitable because here he is. He rides in at this moment, a flash forward to Revelation 19. He's going to be riding a very different animal. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. It's not how he goes into Jerusalem. Humble, lowly, on a donkey. Now he's on a horse and making war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Everybody's on horses. And his, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When it's coming then, he's coming then, it's not a donkey anymore. It's a war horse. So... Here's the lesson to be learned from this. When Jesus comes on a donkey, what are they expecting? Warrior king. Come in, dominate, rid us of oppression, rid us of evil, make us on top, make us powerful. Again, for the first time since David's lifetime, Solomon's lifetime. And what did he come as? A baby? 30 years of obscurity. Then he comes on the public scene. He doesn't do any fighting, doesn't do any aggression. He's just kind of ping-ponging around, lives like a homeless person, and then comes in riding on a donkey when everybody would have just made him king right then, and he had the power to wipe them all out. They were looking for a warrior, and what they got was a shepherd. What are we supposed to be looking for in the second advent? Do we have it reversed? Do we have the same problem that they had? We have a Messiah defined in our minds, and we're not looking at the scriptures to say, this is what he's going to come like the second time. Because Revelation 19 is clear how he's coming the second time. So we need to prepare ourselves according to the scriptures, just like they needed to prepare themselves according to the scriptures when he came the first time. So when he comes, the disciples don't get it. Verse 16, John's so candid to explain how dumb he is and the rest of his friends. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So they see what's happening and they're like, oh, that's pretty cool. They don't get it. It's not until afterwards. John gives a little commentary here and says, you know, after he dies, rises again and ascends to heaven, then they get it. And John's done this before already, right? John 2, 22. When therefore Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That was about the temple when Jesus says, this temple I will destroy and then raise it up in three days. He's talking about himself. And then when he gets killed and raised up in three days, they go, ah, that was it. We didn't get it then, but we get it now. Now, why is that the case? Because John 14, 26 is true. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. This is why Jesus says, it's better for me to leave physically and for you to have the Holy Spirit. 
Because when they, he was there physically, they didn't understand John 2 in the temple, and they didn't understand John 12 in the, in the triumphal entry. But he, Jesus leaves, and now they have the Holy Spirit. Now they get it. Oh, man, the Bible's clicking. For me, God preserves his truth. Now, why does it matter that they saw the significance of the cult prophecy after Jesus has ascended? Why would God make sure that's there? Why would John go to the extent to record it? Hey, pause. By the way, we didn't get it when this was happening, but now we do. I mean, why tell us that? Why give them that confidence after Jesus is gone? For the very reason of that, to give them confidence. Think about it. You're the disciples. Your leader has died. Then he's alive again. He's around for 40 days. And then he's gone. So now you're leaderless. You're confused. You're a ragtag band of misfits. One of you turned out to be a traitor. Didn't even see it coming for three years. And now you're like, well, did we just get it taken in? Did we get hoodwinked? Did we get bamboozled, boondoggled? Any of those redneck words? I mean, did we figure out? I mean, what happened? Are we wrong? No. God brings to mind, this was all supposed to happen like this. This is exactly who Jesus is, giving them the confidence that Jesus is the real McCoy. Graciously making the disciples know Jesus was and is exactly who he said he was and is. Down to the obscurity of Zechariah 9.9. God understands our weaknesses and he does care to strengthen us. Well, now we have the crowd response. They've already gone out with the palm branches and the robes, but now they're going to respond, verses 17 and 18. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So what we have here, if we're not paying attention, we can miss it. We have two factions in this crowd. Right? So there's two groups. One of them was there when he raised Lazarus up. The second one is just there for the feast, and they've all conflated together. So verse 17, that's the one who saw him heal Lazarus, and they just can't stop talking about it. They cannot stop. They continued to bear witness. They keep telling everybody about it. And there's the second part in verse 18. John's going to answer the question, why are all the people present for the feast, for the Passover, the triumphal entry, why are they there in the first place? What does it say? It says, they heard he had done this sign. They heard that he raised a man from the dead. They heard that he could do miracles. They're there for miracles. Luke 19, 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. This second faction are thrill seekers. They've decided that Jesus is the strong man that we need, the one that we want. They're going to get behind him, and he can advocate for us. They're ready to elevate Jesus and have him go and just take over and be their guy, be their leader. And it's clear why the crowd showed up. And the reason they even came out, Jesus is coming down the slope of the Mount of Olives, and they run out of the city gates to meet him. They don't wait for him to come. They run out to meet him. They're so excited about this. And the answer is right there. They heard he had done this sign. 
why did the 12 disciples stay with Jesus after the crowd that was fed bread and loaves left in John 6? Why did they stay? John 6, 67 through 69. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So why did they stay? What did Peter say? He said, well, we saw you multiply that fish and loaves for thousands of people, so we're going to stay because we saw that. No, they stay because you're the one who has words of life. We know that you're the Holy One of God. That's why we're staying. That's it. It doesn't seem very smart to stay, but we're going to because we're convinced of this. Why, why did the whole town of Sychar in Samaria in John 4 come to Jesus? It's John 4, 42. They said to the woman, the woman at the well, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You intrigued us. But we're here because he is the savior of the world. That's why we're here. See, the people aren't here on Palm Sunday because Jesus has the words of life. They're there on Palm Sunday because they know that he can do miracles. They're not there because he's the savior of the world. They're not there because they know he's the holy one of God. They're there because he can, they've heard that he can do magic and he doesn't back down from Pharisees. They see in him a strong man that can fight for them and get them what they've always wanted, their worldly dreams coming true. See, true converts, true disciples, they want Jesus for Jesus, not what he can do for them. They want him, not what he can do for them. They want Jesus, they don't want Jesus to fulfill their desires, they want Jesus to change their desires. We want to desire you and what you have laid out. We want to desire your will. That's true disciples and true converts. You know why the prosperity gospel is so effective? And you know why they, you get such huge mega churches? I mean, we have them here in Texas, Dallas. Between Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio, we have like 80% of the prosperity gospel market cornered in our own state. But you know why that works? It's because you're offering unconverted people what they automatically already want. They all want new cars and better jobs and thinner waistlines. They all want to never have cancer and to never get colds, never have the flu. They all want that. So when you tell them that's what Jesus does, then you gain a huge crowd. You're giving unconverted, unregenerate people what they already want. And now we can, what we don't realize oftentimes, and I don't even realize about myself oftentimes, is how much that's in the water with even us. Now, we're not saying like you're going to get a Corvette or you're never going to get sick again, but we are saying versions of that in our own evangelism when we say Jesus will give you hope or peace, happiness, no relational strife. We're still saying Jesus is worth you coming to him because of what he can do for you. Not, Jesus is worth you coming to him because he is worthy. That's what we should be saying. That's how we should market Jesus if we were going to. So that's why they're there. The thrill seekers are there because of what he can do. But here's the ultimate, the ultimate conclusion. The world's going to worship. The train's going to go. The train will move regardless. So the Pharisees, verse 19, said to one another, 
you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the end of the Disney movie where the bad guys have been foibled and then they're sitting in the mud and they're yelling at each other. It's your fault we lost. It's your fault we lost. That's what they're saying right here. They're looking at each other. You did this. It's your fault we didn't gain anything. It's as if we did, all of our work, all of our effort didn't even work because they're there looking at all these people running out to Jesus. We know is a mixed crowd, but all they can see is Jesus' fandom. And they're like, everything that we've tried has failed, and it's your fault, buddy. And they're like, no, it's your fault, buddy. They're just yelling at each other. All that we've done has not worked. The threats, the argumentations, the entrapments, the, uh, the attacks, the underhandedness, none of it has worked. The world's gone out to him. That's where they are. This level of public defeat, this is what's going to drive their desperation to hire Judas. Our, our credentials didn't close them down. Our threats didn't shut down the hysteria. Nothing that we've tried has worked. So we're going to have to resort to espionage now. We're going to have to get a mole on the inside. That's where they are. They've been driven to this desperation because the world has gone after him. And indeed, wasn't that the mission from the jump? Doesn't Jesus say, John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 6, 33, for the bread of life is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's the point. And the Pharisees are just saying the whole world's gone out to him. Now, obviously, they're speaking, you know, metaphorically or hyperbolically. But it does make you make, as a side note, we have to make sure we're understanding how the word world is being used in the Gospel of John before we say this is what it always means. Because not even all the Jews had gone out there. They hadn't gone out to him, let alone outside the Jewish world. But they're just saying everybody's following him. They're speaking hyperbolically. Even though the crowd that we know is not made up of all true believers, it's a mixed group. The Pharisees just see this externally, and they say it's, it's all coming true. Everything that he said. They hate Jesus being worshipped. They hate it. Mark and, or Matthew and Luke record two other interactions at the triumphal entry about their hatred of his worship. Matthew 21, 15 through 16. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? That's something you can tell a professor. Have you ever read? You ever read the Bible? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies have you prepared praise. You guys never read Psalm 8 verse 2? Where... Even the mouths of children of babies are going to praise me. They hate it. Luke 19, another, another example. 19, 39 through 40, same scene. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. These people are worshiping you. Rebuke them. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You guys never read Habakkuk 2.11? If you shut the mouths of humans, nature is going to start yelling. Rocks are going to start praising me because I am God and all of creation will praise me. It must and it will. They hate the inevitable fact of redemptive history that Jesus will be worshipped. Beautifully written in Philippians 2, 10 through 11, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the inevitable terminus of redemptive history. Everything 
will worship and will acknowledge Jesus to be who he is. He's the Holy One of God. He's the Son. He's the second member of the Trinity. He's the Son of the living God. He's the great I Am. Everything will worship him. He must be worshiped. Even this mixed crowd is showing the truths about that, kind of as a preview. What are we doing here as a church? Our mission is to build up the saints and to evangelize the lost. We're pleading and persuading people to bow the knee now before your leg is forced to bend and your tongue is forced to speak, Jesus Christ is Lord. Do it willingly now because Jesus will be praised. He will receive that praise, the worship of Christ. It's that train that it cannot be stopped. Worship of Christ can be faked, it can be hated, but it cannot be stopped, and it cannot be killed. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. People have and will continue to make false confessions, false professions of faith in Christ. People have and will continue to hate the confessions of Jesus Christ as Lord. But the fakeness and the hatred will never eradicate true worship not temporarily and not ultimately. See, we as Christian church, we have every reason to be confident, every reason to be confident of our ultimate triumph with him. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus makes so clear, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the church is what's next, is stated next, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There will never be a time there will never be an era on the history of the planet where there is not true worship somewhere. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And we get to see even now that there's worship everywhere, all over the place, despite persecution. Why are there still Christians in Iran? Why are there still Christians in China? Why are there still Christians anywhere in all these horrible places? because the gates of hell will not prevail. They can't, they can't win. True worshipers are the only true God we can know. We will not be ashamed on the last day. We will be carried all the way through to the end. Jude 24 and 25 is our encouragement to that. Now to him who is able to keep you, he's able to keep you from stumbling, meaning falling short, not making it in, not getting all the way to glory. He's able to keep you from stumbling, and he's able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. I'm not blameless, but he's able to present me blameless to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Never be a time when worship is wiped off the planet. There'll never be a time that the enemies can succeed. And they can kill some of us. They can kill a lot of us. But they're never going to eradicate true worship. The Pharisees have done everything that they possibly can. And they say, look, it didn't do a lick of good. <laughs> the whole country is out there worshiping it. Even some of them against their, their natural inclinations because they're going to be yelling out, crucify him in a week. But we can trust that there will never be a member of Christ's body because if the head's going to be worshipped and is going to be ultimately glorified, then the body must follow. No member of Christ's body will fail to be in that glory because he is the good shepherd 
and he loses none of his sheep. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you letting us observe this triumphal entry and seeing the right worship of Jesus, even from mixed parties, and seeing the the frustration of Jesus' out-out enemies, that that you will be worshipped, that you are not subject to the evil plans and procedures or laws and decrees of people who hate you, and they've always been here. There's never been an era where there hasn't been, all the way down from people being mocked, all the way up to governmental restrictions against the true worship of the Lord Jesus. It can't be stopped. That train, Lord, you are driving and have created and have purposed, it will end at the exact place that you intend, that we will get to the end. We will get to Revelation 19 with Jesus coming and conquering all evil forever. And we will get to 20 and 21 and 22 of Revelation. No more tears. All evil is walled out. All good is walled in. And there will be nothing but worship inside that new celestial city forever and ever. So Lord, we we entrust ourselves to you. We cannot sustain ourselves. We cannot sustain our church alone, let alone the church all over the world. So we trust it to you who's promised to build our church. Lord, we make no attempts to build your church. You have promised that you will do it. We ask that you would make us faithful. We ask that you would make us honest with the scriptures, that we would take in all that it has to say not cherry pick the places we really like, take in all that it has to say that many made on the day of the triumphal entry. We want to know who you are. We want to know what we're looking for, what we're preparing for, what's coming. And we want to know the truth just permanently emblazoned on our hearts that salvation comes through your son, Jesus Christ, by faith alone. And it is an act of your pure and sovereign grace that you say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Everyone who comes will receive that rest. May we hold dear to that and may that comfort us in the lowest of lows and may it exhilarate us in the highest of highs. Thank you for gathering us today for this worship. Bless all of those that have gathered here today. May it be what we've offered to you this morning, acceptable in your sight. And we thank you for your grace to make it edifying, encouraging, and exhorting to us. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.